Yes, Happy New Year. It's the noise, the noise. It's your boy Jay Barber. As we slide into 2022, hope all your print dreams come true. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's the noise. It's that time of the year where I lend my talents and my platform to help promote Print Austin. It's a wonderful artist-led nonprofit working with venues and artists in the Austin, Texas area to showcase traditional and contemporary approaches in printmaking. This year's festival starts January 15th and lasts through February 15th, offering virtual and in-person experiences. One of the signature events at Print Austin is the 5x5, showcasing five amazing printmakers. This year's juror, Caitlin Clay, curator of exhibitions at the Art Museum of Southeast Texas. I'm happy to talk with one of the selected printers, Linda Whitney, internationally known mesotenter, which is <laughs> which is a great term just by itself, but a wonderful printmaker. How you doing, Linda? I'm doing quite well, and I don't know that I'm internationally known, but <laughs> I try. <laughs> that's awesome, yeah. That's awesome. So, Linda, you had when you got or oh, you're one of the artists selected in the contemporary print five by five at this year's Print Austin. Have you ever been to Print Austin? No, I haven't. I've been to Texas, but I've never been to Print Austin. Oh wow! So this is how exciting is it for you to get to showcase your work there? It's always exciting to get into any show, and this one I was really surprised because I knew how many people had entered. Yeah, and there were only a few people chosen, so I was I was really excited. Nah, that's what's up, man. Your work really shines through. All the stuff that I've seen has been absolutely incredible. Uh, and so let's get into your work and kind of what drives it a little bit. But first, I I saw this note about you, and I really want to ask this question. Assistant Director of the International Mesotent Society, how is a meeting with a whole society of mesotenters? Well, actually, um, the society that society has not actually ever met. Really? Um Right. It was started uh, many years ago by a gentleman who, who lived in Florida. He has since passed. His wife is still involved, and an, another mesotinter from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, is involved. And our, we have a bulletin or a newsletter that goes out periodically, and we do an exchange. But the the... The big deal was a number of us went to Russia to the International Mesotent Festival in 2019 and where we met about 100 mesotenters from all over the world. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And and many of, many of the people from the U.S. that we met actually were part of our society, but we had never met face-to-face until we went to Russia. That, that's got to be great. It was wonderful. And there were over a thousand mesotints there, some historical, but most contemporary. And there were four awards given to the work that was contemporary. And my work took one of the four awards. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I was pretty excited about and pretty surprised about that, too. <laughs> How can you be so surprised by the way that your prints look. I guess we let's start at the beginning a little bit and talk about okay. the mesotint process and kind of describe it for people that may not be super familiar with it. Okay. Well, it is, it's a difficult process to describe, but I'll try. You take a, a metal plate and I work 
specifically on copper, and you have a kind of a curved, serrated blade, and it comes in different sizes, um, but you rock that blade across the surface of the plate, um, and I use 27 different directions. And it's kind of like if you were a farmer and you had a huge shield in front of you, and you took a teaspoon and you went out and you stuck a little hole with your <laughs> teaspoon and piled the dirt outside the hole and then went right next to it and did another one. What you're doing is you're making little holes in the plate, but you're piling that copper up next to the hole. So when you print that plate, ink not only goes into that hole, but it also gets snagged on that little you know, bit of copper that's beside it, making a very fuzzy kind of image. But first, after you have the, you know, the whole plate rocked, seven, 27 different directions, and if you were to print it, it would just be a rich velvety black, then you take a tiny little tool and you start creating your grays. The harder you push, the lighter the color. Because what you're doing is you're 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 pushing that copper back into the holes, so that it doesn't snag the ink. Um, and I use the smallest burnisher I can get, um, and I sharpen it because I want it smaller yet. <laughs> but but it is it's a it's an old technique. It comes out of the 1600s. It was originally developed for, uh, let's say, commercial printmakers <laughs> to copy paintings because not everyone in the 1600s could afford a painting. Mm. Uh, most people couldn't afford a print either, but uh, they were a lot cheaper if you weren't the Pope or you know, a wealthy royalty or a wealthy person. Yeah. You could never afford a painting, but you might be able to afford a print. Yeah. And that's that's where mesotint came from. And then it went out of favor for a long time when other printmaking um, methods were developed, like Intaglio and Silkscreen, um, until, oh boy, I'd say about 30 years ago now. And a number of artists started picking it up and using it. Um, and with my work, I'm not a rule follower. <laughs> Although I insisted my students follow the rules, <laughs> um, I didn't. I'm a self-taught printmaker, even though I taught printmaking for many years in college, college level. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily follow the true meaning of mesotint, mm. um, and that's why my work took uh, the work outside of boundaries <laughs> award <laughs> in Russia. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. So you're self-taught in printmaking. Well, I have I have two degrees in printmaking, but I went to when I went to school, my professors were out of the '60s, and you're you're obviously much younger than than <laughs> I am, <laughs> and they didn't care. They just said, "Well, here's here's a syllabus. Just go do it. Bring me your stuff when you when you're when you're done." So we would, uh, as students, get together and, you know, how do we do this stuff? Yeah. We'd read books. We'd look at artwork. 
we sometimes have visiting artists that helped, but for the most part, we were self-taught or we taught each other. And we did a lot of experimentation, um, and I found that, that that is really a good way to learn. I mean, if you don't push the edges, you know, you're never going to grow as an artist and certainly not as a printmaker. There's certain things you have to follow because you are working with sometimes chemicals. Um, in my case, I'm working with 20-pound plates um, that have sharp edges, so you can't be flinging them around. But I think we learned enough, and when I started teaching, um, I encouraged my students to really push, once they had the, the basics down, to really push at the edges of their learning so that they could expand their abilities and their knowledge. Yeah, that's a great way to learn. I think I'm it, I'm I'm not self-taught, but I've taught myself screen printing and I find that my understanding of screen printing is much different because of all the mistakes that I made along the way, like getting to know like all right, now you the difference between uh you know, I used to do my screens with a 30 watt light bulb in my closet. So you know, the difference between doing it for 18 minutes and 18 and a half minutes is the difference between, exactly. you know, pass or fail. So, you know, you really start to learn your materials when you have to, exactly. like, go through the dirt with it, you know. Absolutely. That is the best way to learn. Yeah, that's fascinating. So why in the world would you spend all this time teaching at Valley City State University, then retire and pick up such a, a more tedious uh, medium that, as such as mezzotint? Well, when I was in graduate school, I wanted to learn full color intaglio. And my professor, actually, I was teaching, <laughs> I was teaching the printmaking classes <laughs> as, <laughs> as a TA. And so I had to, I, I fortunately, I met a, a young artist from Chicago who came in as a visiting artist. And he did full color and I learned a little bit from him and then I just started playing around with it and I worked with large plates not as large as of what is in um, Austin but quite large and I had uh, four plates sometimes five plates and sometimes six plates um, all different colors and um, I love that it, it's a little bit toxic because at that, that point I was working with real toxic uh, chemicals, you mm-hmm. know, etch the plates. But, you know, when you move to copper, you can be a little bit safer. Right. But in the, in the print labs at the universities, we, you know, we, we started to go non-toxic for one. And two, when I retired, I didn't want to bring any of that acetone. Um, although my whole house is studio, I still didn't want to play with the acids. Yeah. And somewhere along the line towards the, oh boy, about five five years before I retired, I went, let's figure out what this mesotent's all about. And I got the Carol Wax book, which is kind of the Bible of, of mesotinting. Um, and I read it, and I tried it, and I liked it. And I'm... Mm, I'm dyslexic, I'm a slow learner, and I'm shy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 
actually it was the first print I ever made was in sixth grade and it was a woodcut. Um, and I just couldn't get the detail. I think if I would have figured out wood engraving, I might be a wood engraver today. Mm, but yeah. I, I also have what I call a disease called horror de vacui, the fear of vacuum. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't vacuum my house. <laughs> I don't like negative space. <laughs> so, I like detail. Um, and I, I really like, I really, really liked the mezzotint. Um, and it took me a long time to really kind of pick up my, you know, my, my pace with it. But um, the year I retired, I, I had a press built. And actually, I had the football team carry it into my living room. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not huge, but it's just big enough. And and slowly, my house has turned into uh, a mezzotint studio. It's, it has supplies and storage. And the only for- furniture I have that's non-studio is my bed. <laughs> 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 Yeah, this has got to be some kind of printmaking dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I just, um, my my husband, uh, who has passed away, passed away from COVID, Mm. um, was a powwow powwow dancer. And so we did spend years uh, going to powwows. And uh, because I'm dyslexic, I have two left feet. (laughs) 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 So I never did dance in the powwows, but he did. And so I got to know a lot of people. I just became very enamored with their their regalia, um, the beautiful outfits, the colors, and the athleticism, Mm -hmm. and started doing their portraits. And then it slowly moved onto my copper plates. That was definitely going to be one of my questions about your relationship to the powwow, because you do handle it with such dexterity and such um, passion and love, like not just in particular the medium that requires you uh, to be so patient and and exact in how you work in the process, but just in your depiction of it. And I find it really fascinating, uh, some of the prints. So can I talk about one in particular? Uh, that really popped in. It might have been one of the first ones I saw, but Butterfly Sister Dancing for the Little Ones. I really love this print. So can you tell me a little bit about that print in particular, this person, this dance, and how you created the composition and things? Well, um, first, the, the, it's a fancy shawl dancer, and the the concept behind the fancy shawl dance is that it is the story of kind of a, a rebirth of regeneration. Um, it symbolizes the uh, the caterpillar um, when it be, when it becomes a butterfly. So that the woman who is dancing, um, she is acting as if she or cousin to the butterfly to fly and dance. There are certain steps you take, but the idea is to to make her image, she wants to make her image mimic a butterfly. And oftentimes, 
the outfits that are created tell that story. Um, and that particular uh, print that you, the militant that you, you mentioned, she's a butterfly sister, and and she was created when they first started talking about finding all of these graves in the residential schools. And although I I was already aware of those that are in my area, um, because friends and relatives had talked about their you know their days or their parents' days or their grandparents' days in the residential schools, uh, and and I also knew that many children died, mm. um, and I wanted because because the butterfly dancer. The fancy shell dancer is one of rebirth. I wanted that particular image. Uh, actually, I'm stuck on that image right now. But um, to honor all of those children um, that are gone. Um, and just prior to that, I had done a series on missing and murdered women, which is also. Uh, and I don't know about in the South, but certainly up here, we have a lot of indigenous women that just disappear. Um, in fact, right across the border, and I'm in North Dakota, so uh, we're pretty much right on the border. In Canada, there's a highway that is that young women are told not to, to be on, not to hitchhike on, because it's a disappearing highway. It's where mm. women go to disappear. Yeah, And that just really that not only bothers me, but it really hits me in the heart. And I just want to, you know, honor all of those people. And I don't know, I'm not rich and I'm not famous, you know, so this is, this is my way of honoring them. Um, and all of my powwow dancing friends will send me photographs of themselves or of others. And ask me not only would I what do you know create their portraits, which I no longer do because my eyes are getting too old. But um, I do use I do look at the shape or the the, the posture of um, you know the body as it dances mm-hmm. because I don't dance, so it's not something that I have innately in me. But I see through their eyes. But all of the outfits, all of the regalia, I create. I create the idea. And I know enough about regalia because I've worked on regalia to to know what is what is correct and what isn't correct. But I do all the design work myself. So it's kind of like kind of like I'm playing with paper dolls <laughs> in one sense. <laughs> but making the paper dolls own clothes. And that's just just keeps me going. And I've decided, because right now I'm working on another butterfly dancer, my next solo show will be just butterfly dancers. Yeah, that's amazing. And and I, I was, I guess that leads to my next question. It is about the layers in detail of the regalia that you talk about. Um, so did you used to make regalia for your husband? Yeah, well... It took me 18 months to make part of his research. <laughs> it's very time-consuming. Um, and, of course, that was my first 
my first try, but um, most of these outfits that you'll see at the powwow are handmade, for one, and two, passed down Mm. from one generation to another. And certainly, uh, there are certain parts of it that aren't, but um, everything has a meaning and everything has a tradition, and you have to have the right, you know, in your um, culture, your tribe, your people, usually they don't say tribe, but your people, to make that particular item, mm. particularly when it deals with feathers uh, or other sacred objects. Um, and I was given the right to do what I did for my husband, but um, I can't work with feathers because I'm not an enrolled member of a, of a, you know, a known tribe. Right. Yeah. And so one has to be careful there. But And the colors I choose, very few people ask me about the colors. Oh, that I was my next to... question. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're a printmaker. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the four direction colors for the people in this area are white and black. So white for pa- the paper, black for the ink, and yellow and red. And I've gone to using earth pigments which is really just dirt that have a bind that you know that I use a binder so that it doesn't fall off the print mm-hmm. um, and I use a little tiny brush and I do all this to make to slow me down <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes a long time um, it can take a hundred hours just to rock the plate. Wow! And take long. It could take longer than that to burnish the plate, and then I have to do about five proofs before I get it to where I want it. And then um, when I hand apply this earth pigment, it takes me at least eight hours per print. Wow! Um, so I really get into podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's that's amazing, yo. And hey, I guess I guess you were kind of born a printmaker. I guess with your with the your shyness and the dyslexia and all the stuff, like it like it feed <laughs> it kind of pulled you right in because this is, seems like the type of process that uh, you have to love it. You know what I'm saying to yep. get into it to spend that much time on it. That's amazing. That's, how long that's would it right. how long would it take you normally to do a print like with all the proofs and the rocking and you know you're probably working on multiples at a time. I would think. That's right. <laughs> um, well, you know, I've never actually counted all of the hours, but I'm always like I have a plate that I'm rocking right now. I have two plates that I'm additioning, and I have, um, and I try to do it hand uh, apply this pigment to at least three prints a week. Um, but I work from 10 o'clock at night until noon each day. Um, oh, wait a minute. Did you say 10 o'clock at night till 10 noon? 10 o'clock at night. Yep. <laughs> I live right next to the university where I taught. Wow. <laughs> and I'm, I'm surrounded by students and university buildings, and I like it quiet. <laughs> <laughs> 
oh, also, wow. yeah. my, my, my hobby is caring for dogs at the end of their lives. Mm. So um, about three years ago, uh, my mailboxer had cancer, and he was the one that got me into staying up all night. Plus, when I go back to Russia, I'll be on Russian time. <laughs> <laughs> you just wake up and go. No jet lag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing, yo. So I, I hear in your voice and in uh, the stories that you're telling, you're a very empathetic person that you, you know, caring about and connecting with people and animals and, and all these other things. Where do you think that comes from? Um, I think from being shy <laughs> and, <laughs> and from being the oldest child in a, a house full of children. Mm. Um, and I remember telling my mother when she, when she was pregnant, when she told me she was pregnant with my youngest brother, I said, well, you can raise this one. <laughs> <laughs> because it seemed like I had raised the others, <laughs> even even though you know I I, I was quite young. Um, I mean, I was four when my my first other sibling was born, so I don't think I did a whole lot of caretaking. But I did as I got older, and I've lived on a farm. I raised purebred dairy goats. And chickens, and again, it's the animal thing. You know, when 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 you're really shy and communication is difficult. Teaching taught me to to be a better communicator, but yeah, you know, communicating with animals is just so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to worry about their egos at all. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, you give them their basic needs, and, and you know you could they'll be your best friend for a little while. Hey, everybody! This is Chloe Alexander, printmaker from Atlanta, and you are listening to Studio Noise. That's amazing. So you grew up in North Dakota. Uh, I, I, basically, yeah. I, I moved to North Dakota when I think I was in first grade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you were there. So, yeah. I was, yeah. And why I didn't ever leave this frozen wasteland, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, you So, in, in terms of your work with the, before you started the powwow, what was that like? Um, well, my, my thesis from my, for my MFA was about sexual abuse of children. And where did you get your MFA from? Uh, I'm from the University of North Dakota. All right. Of course, of course you did. (laughs) I had two children at that point. I went back to school and not wanting to go too far, um, with my two children. Uh, because I was a single parent at that point. And so I went to the University of North Dakota, and I had outshone most of the, well, all of the printmaking faculty at that point. Uh, after I left, they, they hired 
other people that, you know, show, you know, very well. But prior to that, um, I had more show experience than, mm. than the professors. But I was also, again, I was teaching all of the printmaking classes. My studio mate and I taught all of the printmaking classes. I don't do litho, so she did the litho. We did the silk screen together. I did all of the intaglio. Why Why didn't you ever do litho? Why didn't I do litho? Yeah. I, I just didn't ever um, acquire it, I guess. You know, I was doing that color intaglio and there are uh, and teaching half time and have two kids, I just didn't have. <laughs> and my ex husband, yeah. who was not a printmaker, built a litho press. <laughs> it was an Italian press. <laughs> nah, that's amazing, yo. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So tell tell me a little bit about that work you did um, about the children. Um. I came at it from, it started when I, I guess I was really interested. My advisor's wife was a psychologist and she and I were having a conversation at one point and she was telling me about this group of children she worked with. They were abused kids and she, she I was working with nightmares you know, how how do nightmares work? You know, why do we have these nightmares, we as people? Um, and what happens to a child when, or, you know, a young person when they're put in a difficult position, whether they're, they're raised by alcoholics or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the, what kind of images? And I, and I had a very white bread, I guess we could say, uh, a very wonder bread, upbringing, you know, just typical family, not a lot of money, just normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just started playing around with these kind of kind of scary images, but I wanted to juxtapose those scary images with innocence and with um, childlike images. So that's pretty much what I did. And, and she, she invited me to meet these, this group of children um, that she worked with and I could go to their group sessions and I could sit in the corner. I couldn't interact with them during their sessions. I could just listen. And and I just I didn't think consider myself to be stupid, but I was just so shocked that in this little town in North Dakota there were so many kids that had had this happen to. Mm. Um, well, of course, I know now that there are many, many more. Um, but you know, these kids just just ripped my heart out. Just what they went through was just so horrific. And when my fish show opened, um, after you know, after all the the happiness, yay, I'm done, and, you know, the celebration. These kids came into my into my show, and, and I was there with them, and I had three very, very interesting 
connections with them. The youngest was uh, five, and she was very hyper. And I, I knew I knew that, and I I made sure that there was some paper and crayons. And she and I were on the floor drawing on this big sheet of paper. And she jumped up and she grabbed my hand and she took me to the last prints that I created. One was called um, I'll Be Good. And the other one was titled Don't, Daddy, Don't. And she was swinging my hand back and forth and saying, now this is coming out of a five-year-old's mouth. I, um, she said, are these pictures about sexual abuse? And I looked at her mm. and I said, well, yes. She said, I thought so because that's what my daddy did to me. Oh, wow. And I knew her, I knew her story. Um, but the tears just, and I'm not a crier. But the tears just shot out of my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that powerful. I, I I wanted my work to be that powerful, but I didn't want it to hurt her. Right. Mm. Um, and I had, during the, the last year of creating these works, and I used Raggedy Ann, the Raggedy Ann doll, in my work um, a lot, the image of Raggedy Ann. I made 100 Raggedy Ann doll kits, and I asked at random 100 people to make the Raggedy Ann doll and to name the doll and return the doll. And then I, uh, from these kids and from other uh, counselors, I gathered 100 abuse stories, and I numbered them, numbered the stories, this is really before we had computers, but we, not everybody had a computer, and had them typed up and put them in a book. And they were all numbered. Um, and then as the dolls came in, each little doll got a little wrist, uh, a little um, bracelet with its number on it, with its name and number. Because what I did is I took all those those stories uh, that were numbered. I put the numbers in one fishbowl, and I put the names of the dolls in the other. And I just grabbed a number and then a doll. And the, the concept was that you, the doll maker, would take all this time making these dolls uh, and care for it uh, and name it. And, and then you would come into my show and see how, um, what happened to your doll after it left your care. Mm. Now, again, I was not real bright and I was very innocent because about a third of the people that turned in dolls were abuse survivors. Wow. And I didn't need to tell them anything or teach them anything. Yeah. Um, and I, I graduated with my MFA on Mother's Day of 1993, and those dolls are still working. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it because that's that's you know one of those issues that we don't talk about in the community as much, but is is very pervasive. Right, and it's um, my studio mate and I hung those dolls with black yarn. 
um, in, in an envisioned installation. They hung from the ceilings and, and to the floor. And then each doll had their little you know, name tag on. And then the books, there were three books that were around this installation piece. And you would come in and find your doll and uh, go to the, the transposal book and, and see what happened. I didn't expect these children to go and find their stories and then find the doll that was connected to their to their their circumstance. But oh. they all did it. Wow, the actual children from the stories found the doll that kind of yep. represented them. Yep. Wow. Uh, and they asked as a group if they could have the dolls when they were done working. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> they're all adults now. Um, but it, that, you know, that was very, a very difficult time period. Um, I did go on and I wrote a couple grants and I wanted to honor a group of children that did not survive their abuse, but I wanted input from people who had been abused. And so I contacted um, counselors throughout the United States and asked them if they had any clients that could do this uh, in a, you know, not, I wouldn't use names. I didn't need to know names um, if they would make a doll and respond on a sheet of paper. And I would send them the paper because I was going to bind this this beautiful paper uh, with their artwork or story or whatever they wanted to do with the sheet of paper in a book. And I received all the grants and um, sent out the doll, you know, more... Um, more doll uh, stuff uh, and the paper and I started getting about three months later I started getting all kinds of things this just took off and people were sending me things and I, and I sent self-addressed dumped envelopes so I would know what I was getting when it came and right. I could have to steal myself right yeah so, because um, it was like getting a kick in the in the stomach yeah. every time I I opened these envelopes, and people just started sending me their own stuff in their own envelopes. <laughs> um, and then I was going to do twelve full color intaglio images of children, and uh, the first that was the first year I taught at VCSU, and I thought I'd have all summer to work on this. And that right before school got out, I was up painting a mural with a student. It was a student project. Uh, she, the student had designed the mural. And the equipment failed, and I fell 18 feet. Oh, no. And broke my shoulder. <laughs> oh, no. And uh, to pull an intaglio press, you need both hands. <laughs> 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 that's so true that's so, so true I, I developed a, I used Karen Dosh and I created these little tiny plates um, and so the images were of their childlike images 
monotypes of little tiny pieces that I piece together to create a, you know, an image of a child because I had a deadline on one of the grants that I had to have a show by, a, by the end of September, I think it was. And it was very fortunate because, I mean, for me, because every time I take a, you know one of these images apart and put it back together, it would kind of get off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And really, when you abuse a child over and over and over, they might look the same, but they are not the same. They're off a little bit. And so these images were, you know, told the story better than I could have, just by the fact that they were not perfect, I guess, is a good way to say it. Yeah, yeah, I think that that kind of um, juxtaposition almost. Uh, right. The different pieces, like, says a lot more about what the content of what's happening than just a, a perfectly done mesotent would. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Ah, that's fascinating. And that's had to be um, a lot of uh, emotional work for you to, to, to hear those stories and, and try to visualize it and almost make it a part of you for so long. Yeah, it was. It was very difficult. And after that, I said, I'm going to go back and do Rocky the Squirrel. Bowling <laughs> 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 Yes, you need a break from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that, Joe. I love that. And so how do you how do you think that uh did that inspire you to kind of move into the powwow indigenous culture type of stuff? Well, my grandmother was a border hopper from Canada, from Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, but she hopped as a as a young child. Uh, her mother was from Scotland, and her father was Cree Métis. Um, we don't have a father's name on her, just her mother's name. And she and her sisters were, as she told me, they were sold to a white man who resided in what is now Minnesota. Um we have not been able to prove any of this, but she looked very Indian, my grandmother did, and her sisters. Um, and that always intrigued me. You just really, you know, really. And I, when I was little and I'd watch TV, you know, The Lone Ranger. Yeah. I, ne- I never wanted to be The Lone Ranger. I always <laughs> wanted to be Tonto. <laughs> he was cooler than it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and one of the girls in the neighborhood played with dolls. I'd jump on my metal gas tank. It looks like a little, I don't know, it looks like a capsule of some type. And I'd ride away because I did not want to play dolls. I wanted to be on a horse. Um, but and even as a child, you know, when we would go places in, in Minnesota and, and see the indigenous culture, I, that just drew me, it just drew me. I, I, I have no, I, I have no experience that I can pull out of, you know, out of my memory that tells me this is why I was so intrigued. But, um, as an adult, 
I met a number of, well, actually in high school, I lived in right next to a reservation. And that really, and I had a number of uh, uh, Indian friends. And that, and they would, they would allow me to come into their homes and meet their parents and their grandparents. And again, I just felt like I had come home. Mm. So, and it didn't bother me that, you know, they weren't not wealthy. In fact, they were very poor, but I just, I just loved being around them. I loved the stories. I loved the, the food. Uh, I just, it just, it was just like coming home. And then I met, um, I started going to powwows and I just loved the feeling. I don't know if you've ever been to one, but you can feel the drum in your, the drum mm, yeah. in your chest. Yeah. I feel like um, I feel that way when I go to um, African performances. Yeah, drums like and, yeah, it's just, it's some some about it that feels right and natural, right? Just to be there right. in the, in the space and see it, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree. You know, I have not been to many of those. But I've been to a couple, and but I don't have any connections there. You know, in the yeah. sense of. Um, but anyway, I got super intrigued, and then I met this gentleman. I was looking for a spiritual, actually, I was looking for someone to teach me the Lakota language. Um, and I had a lawyer friend who was, had been married, and his wife had died, but she, she was Lakota. And he speaks it fluently, but he would not teach me. <laughs> <laughs> so I went out um, you know, in search of someone that would teach me, and I met this gentleman. And he taught me a lot of things. And we ended up, after three years, getting married. And he was the powwow dancer. Mm. And, a, and I learned a lot from him. Um, and it just, you know, the, the, the more you go, it's, you know, the, the more intrigued you become. Nah, that's a wonderful and story. And I love learning. And when I put myself in those kinds of positions... Of just observing and listening, um, you learn. Absolutely. And so, as we finish this out, I want to talk about one more print of yours. Uh, and I've, I've, I absolutely love this print. It, it is quite something. Uh, right off your website at lwhitneystudio.com. Uh, Ojibwe, they came. Uh, Tell me about this one because it is, it is absolutely beautiful. Well, I felt, and I'd love to return to that series, the Oyates and the Ojibwe, um, to tell the story of, to tell the real story, not the story that we learned in school, um, uh, you know, about, about the, the, European coming to this in, this landmass, and they say that they discovered it. Well, it wasn't lost for one thing. Um, it, it's always been here. The indigenous people governed themselves. You know, they they had a way of living that was um, in one with Mother Earth. And in my studies, in my 
learning of of culture from the people themselves. I just wanted to tell those stories. But I got through only two groups of people, and, and I need to go out and live with other people, I guess, <laughs> to continue. Yeah. Because it's, it's the same. You know, I, as I'm up all night, I listen to BBC, and I get a, I get a lot of input from people who have names I cannot pronounce because they're from other places on the globe. Mm. But I'm so intrigued, whether they're from Africa or from Indonesia or wherever. You know, I just go, wow, there's just so much interesting, so many interesting things out there and interesting people. I hope I live to be like, <laughs> who's that old guy? That's <laughs> 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 to be a thousand years. <laughs> But that's that's what I was doing with those that whole series. There's a whole series of them. Yeah, tell me about the the children that you're featuring in those. Um, that is my daughter. Oh wow! Okay. When when she was she's uh, now in Chicago, <laughs> and um. I just put her in that Ojibwe cradle board. And being that I spent my early years in Minnesota, I, you know, it, that those are loons and, and uh, using the woodlands designs. Um, and that's just really... That's a short story, I guess you might say. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. It's, it's 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 fine. And so, and so, I don't know. I I look at this and it it gives me all the things that I kind of love about mesotense and in, in the fact that you do start with uh, this velvety black and you kind of mold it. You know what I'm saying? And you you almost subtractively build up the light uh, inside of it. Uh, how exactly. how long how long does it would it does it take you to do this? Because it looks like it's in two pieces. Was it were these two different plates? Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, when I first started the larger pieces, you know, rocking the plate by hand, it, it, reaching to the middle of the large plates that I use now, I could never do with a hand rocker. I have a pole rocker now that helps me get to the middle of the plate. So when I started those. I had two plates that were um, 18 inches by 24 inches. Oh, wait, no, these are 12 by 12 by 18. So the, the whole piece is 18 inches by 24 inches with the two plates together. Oh, I got you. I got you. So, so because you couldn't reach and properly rock the middle of it, you had two right. separate plates to be, oh, ah, I got you. I got you. Look at that. Brilliant. And then uh, <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> well, it's called being lazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating. It's, it's that's the best thing about talking to printmakers especially, but artists in general, is the, all the different ways in which they have we all have the same tools. The process of mesotent is not the same, but everybody's gonna have a different way and a different reason for why they do the things they do or why they use that particular 
brayer or that particular rocker or you know what i'm saying that particular ink like the specifics of it is fascinating you know what i mean so like just yeah, that little I, tidbit i think is like <laughs> it's, it's really it makes so much sense yeah Especially when you're a poor artist. Exactly. You got to make a way, you know what I'm saying? I I made woodcuts off an old shelf. You know what I mean? Like it kind of is what it is. I love it, though. That's right. Yeah, I love it. Exactly. So how long long does it take you to do? I mean, I just look at her face and just imagine like all the different proofs. Tell me this about mesotentin. Well. Can you, can you. Is it is it a way that you can correct what you're doing or is it all like slowly done just to get to that point? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like if you yes. if you rock if you burnish too much of her face and it got too light, is there a way to bring it back? Yes. Okay. Um there are there's a gentleman in France who makes these wonderful little tools that I use uh, you can get little tiny rockers, you know, like a half an inch mm, wide. I, okay. use, I use that a lot to go back. But that puts, you know, really deep holes in the plate again. Um, but this gentleman in France makes these wonderful little roll, you know, roulettes that you can roll over an area and slowly darken it. Mm. And I use, I use those a lot. Um, but especially when I'm dealing with faces, and there's a reason why I don't, a couple of reasons why I don't do faces anymore. One is I don't want it to be a portrait of the person. Mm. And two, um, they are just, you know, if the person knows that I'm doing it and I don't get their portrait right, I'll hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want it to be about the the dance and the regalia, right? The, yeah. Um, but when I was doing these, yes, you do it very slowly because it's very difficult, you know, to erase, so to speak. Um, you know, to make it darker again, you can do it, but it takes twice as long to make it darker than it does to make it layer. That's amazing, y'all. I want to thank you so much for talking with me on the podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you and learn about your process and, and your prints and mesotents and all this good stuff, yo. Well, thank you for, for having me on your podcast. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bay. Special episode. Supporting Print Austin. Go check them out at printaustin.org. See all the events. Get you some prints. <laughs> Support the artists. It's a good time. I love it down there. And all my printmakers out there, as always, there's no room for print faking. Only print making in the studio. It's 2022. No print faking, baby. Let's make some stuff. Let's make some noise. That's what we on, baby. We'll be back with you. More episodes of The Noise coming soon. Yes. Holla at your boy. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about The Noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast. 